It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Backing Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a model of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number one in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, February the 3rd. First, I'll be talking to Guy Pearson, the CEO and founder of Ignition, the world's first client engagement and commerce platform for professional services businesses. Under Guy's leadership, Ignition supports over 350,000 monthly client engagements in its 5,000-plus customers in over 20 countries around the world. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Levery about China's emergence from zero COVID and what it means for the Chinese and global economy. But now let's talk to Guy Pearson. Well, Guy, tell us about uh, Ignition. You're an accounting software company. What exactly do you do? Uh, yeah, Ignition is a client engagement and commerce platform. Uh, we're founded out of an accounting firm originally, uh, which I started in, in 2009. And the way I describe it, typically is Shopify for services. So proposals, so you have a service library, drop and drag them onto a proposal, turns into a contract with these signatures, links through to payment information, can link into workflow systems, into your billing or invoicing through things like Xero. And so you kind of end up end-to-end sort of quoted cash um, and our customers are pretty much professional services businesses with a very large concentration um, in the accounting and bookkeeping industry around the world. So solving my own problem, uh, trying to make sure people get paid for the work they do and that there's a clarity and transparency between the two parties of the relationship. So our customer, the service provider, and their client, the SMB or the individual consuming the services. So you basically provide the accounting software for the accountants? Sure. I would say more proposal contract management and payments as opposed to a two-sided general ledger. The accountants, if they're listening, would get very uh, upset if I said that we were an accounting solution, like a ledger. Right. Um, okay. So just making sure that's clear. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, you've uh, you've grown from Australia, you have now have offices, offices around the world. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. Love the country we're from. So it's a beautiful place, but as my cousin who's based out of Florida will remind me, there's something like three or four million more people in Florida. And so if you're going to build a big business and try and disrupt an industry, uh, Australia is a great test bed, um, great adopter of early stage technology, but we really were trying to change an industry and, and build a global footprint to build a large business and, and have you know, 
a great impact on, on SMB's lives and on the industry I came from. So accounting and bookkeeping's lives as well. That's the how and the why. Business need to go global, small population here. We went early, earlier than most. Um, I'd watched a few businesses go straight from landing a few hundred slash thousand customers in Australia and the B2B to business to business software business and then head overseas and they would land over there and they will have raised a big chunk of money to go and build a much bigger team where they were obviously going to have the same success but faster and they get over there and, and tend to squander all the all the money that they've raised and then have to sort of you know, pull back and then figure out how to go again so we went early um, almost with scouts if you like it's one to the US one to the UK one to Canada um, and as a result we sort of got to our first hundred customers uh, we learned what our partners uh, who they would be well, we needed to, do to integrate with them and any sort of tricky little compliance pieces that might need to exist within our product for those regions um, and as those businesses grew and the cloud adoption curve shifted more in the b2b landscape in those countries we were able to follow on with investment and, and try and drive that right out so sort of being bit by bit but more like a hockey stick so basically what you were doing was uh, correct me if i'm wrong you were scouting out these areas first and getting partners would that be the approach? Yeah, that would be the approach. We'd already had a few customers from each of those regions, regions before we had any presence there. And so we, we thought there was interest, that we had a belief in it. We, the research said the market was big enough to support our software. There wasn't any competitors. But the only way you typically prove all of that out is to you know, get someone over there who can speak to customers, partners, you know, uh, industry bodies, everything else in their time zone, and perhaps even go and shake their hand, you know, thinking about the years gone by before COVID. So that's what those folks were, were sort of uh, charged with doing in their responsibilities. So, I mean, how, what do you think the biggest challenges and problems, for that matter, facing accounting and professional services businesses now? I think they've done step one of like the move to the cloud. So they've gone to an online ledger with their clients where they have a single source of truth, which is great. So you're both looking at the same data, so the accountant and the client. But I think they haven't gone to the next step of building out the advisory side, which was, you know, these numbers are here, they're accurate, and the, the so what piece. And I think that stems from the fact that as a recovering accountant, we all were taught about tax and compliance and bookkeeping and numbers being accurate, but no one ever talked to you about the key economic drivers behind a business so like what is the metric in our client's business that matters that would drive the outcomes that they're seeking and then how do you move that and do the cut structure make sense and those sorts of questions so and move over to advisory so you know as more and more technology comes to pass and more and more transactions are automated from source through to the, the accounting ledger they need to actually understand what that means and, and what drives those so they can be more helpful in helping those clients achieve their outcomes so the move to advisory We've been talking about it in this country, particularly for 10 plus years. And I, I still think that we're only sort of step one of the way there. Would it be correct to say that you're not actually having conversations with those clients? Yeah. You're not communicating properly. <laughs> so if you're, if you're an accountant and you've got clients, you're probably not, you're either too busy or you, you haven't put in systems and sort of spent enough time on, let's call it the research and development in your firm to actually put the tools in place to be able to have the conversations with the clients or you're just too busy, particularly the last couple of years with payrolls and forecasts and budgets and everything else that maybe it all just went on a hiatus for a few years. So I still think there's room for an opportunity there, yes, to have the correct conversations because I'm not sure uh, who looks after your compliance whether you do it yourself, but you typically don't 
want to hug the person for just doing the thing you pay them to do on time, right? Like that's not really an emotional response or something that perhaps has a really high value attached to it unless it's very complex. Clearly, it's you help change my outcome. That's what I want you for. Yeah, I mean, my, my observation of many accountants is that they, they're very good at what they do, obviously, but they don't, what they do, what they do need is to have communications with clients through things like newsletters, and they don't have enough newsletters, which I offer them. They don't. And I offer them that all the time, you know? So. <laughs> no, you're right. And I don't think, um, going back to the systems piece, they don't have like sort of the source of truth. So wherever their client records are held. Yeah. Do any communication marketing piece. Yeah. The majority. In yeah. which case they can't even send out automated communications because sure. you signed up for a particular service, right? Like it's just like how many emails do you get after you buy a pair of shoes online? You get like 30 and within a year offering you other kinds of shoes that might look similar. Like the yeah. accountants do none of that. Yeah, but also, but it's not even just to tell for the accountant to tell the client what they're offering, but also to get a conversation going with the client. Oh, yeah. Which is... Or just uh, remind them that something's comes, coming up in due. And, and like anything client, proactive. And the client can come back to you with questions and, and a conversation like that. Uh, I mean, the current economic outlook says see many businesses cutting costs. So how's that affecting the sector? What are, what are those old wives' tales? Two things certain in life, death and taxes. So I would say that the... The sector is reasonably resilient on the compliance income. Um, I think where you're going to see the fall off would be um, their small business clients um, sort of imploding. Right. Um, and so if they've got our accounts receivable outstanding for clients that haven't been able to pay their bills. They're like, they have to write those off as bad debt. So I'd say that's where you'll see it hit the industry, but it really depends on the, the impact of the SMB generally. Um, now, the accountants having the conversations with their clients to your last point, We'll probably avoid all of that and won't go under and we'll stay afloat. But the, the ones that perhaps don't have that or where the industries are, are you know, vastly affected by a downturn in the economy, I expect to be small to minimal in, in just like the regular work that comes through every month, week, quarter. Well, how can uh, these professional services businesses ride through these tough times and keep their clients on board? <laughs> Communicating and having a conversation is definitely a great first step. But moreover, uh, thinking about pricing, cost structure, and value provision of their business model. So if you're following me through this, like, you know, you pay for your coffee, they make your coffee, you get your coffee, and you're happy with that sort of exchange of value and the costs. A lot of businesses don't quite run a model that makes sense. So professional services firms are some of the worst, where they have a cost structure where they pay a team member. Like today, they do work. They then get to the end of the work. Maybe it's a month, two months, a quarter later. They then bill their client for that work maybe within 30 days and their client takes about 90 days to pay. And so you're looking at a very long cash funding cycle. That's true for accountants, architects, lawyers, you name it. So the best way uh, for that segment, the segment we look after to solve for that is to have that sort of transparent conversation up front, but also just think about the business model and make sure you get a promissory of, of paying some of your fees at least up front or like, direct debit authorization or something. I mean, I'm shameless plug. You could use Ignition to solve that problem, but I feel like just generally, if you've got your business model and cash flow in and out, sort of be fairly resilient throughout the next period. So what advice would you have for other startups looking to achieve scale as uh, Ignition has? Um, solve a problem you care about. That's probably step one. Like uh, there's very few entrepreneurs that build a great business in an area they don't actually care about. They just saw a business opportunity, you know, like they might achieve some scale, but like you have to be willing to go through sort of all the hard yakers that were 
to get out the other side, um, to go through all the hard times. Um, if you know the subject matter intimately, then you know the problems to be solved and you probably know your first 100 customers. So I think solve a problem that you care about in an area that you understand already. And scaling, I feel like we hired a few things too late and too early. Uh, but the thing that we didn't do in some cases is we didn't you know, fire quickly enough in occasions. And with what's coming up next year and perhaps a downturn in slower or longer sales cycles, um, I think you need to be more prepared to be able to do that. And then focus on TAM. So where where is where is your market? As I started at the top, like Australia is awesome. Very patriotic, very happy the Socceroos got up this morning. Um, but you have to build a very large business. If you want to build a very large business, it's very hard to do it in Oz. You kind of have to think about the world and solving the world's problems. Well, Guy, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Leon. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Avery. Now, Michael, China's Beijing's sudden and chaotic break from zero COVID has cost the economy and raised questions about the country's top-down economic model. And there are scars from three years of coronavirus turmoil. They're not expected to fade quickly, which raises questions about Beijing's cherished development goals. What's your view about all of this in relation to the Chinese economy and the global economy? Well, I think we can easily admit that China reopening is good news, both for it and for the global economy in the longer run. However, in the short run, the impact from letting COVID rip is going to be even more damaging in that people will be ill, you know, at home, self-isolating, etc. So the first quarter of 2023 is likely to be really weak, possibly even the second quarter. But after that, we do expect a strong bounce back. And we think, you know, you could get a decent pickup in the second half of the year. And going forward, obviously, it has to be more positive than it was when it was locked down. But there are a number of other important implications to that particular issue that I think are worth pulling out and separating from that one headline. What are those issues? Well, first of all, as you alluded to, what is going on with the top-down model? You will find no shortage of cheerleaders who are happy to decry the failings the evident failings of Western liberal democracy and talk about how wonderful China's system is. They've all gone rather quiet at the moment, given the, you know, the, the screeching U-turn that we've seen and the very real problems that China is experiencing with its medical system in what's currently happening. Uh, you know, they, they weren't prepared. You've got plenty of anecdotes of people scrambling to try and get hold of paracetamol and basic medications, et cetera, et cetera. So questions need to be asked on that front from a business community that was already increasingly skeptical of China even if they are optimistic about reopening. Then we have the second question is, what underlying strength do we see in terms of Chinese consumption relative to what we saw in the West, where we had like revenge consumption? Remember, most people in the West were paid to stay at home. And in China, actually, you've had a multiple year lockdown on and off with no government help whatsoever for most people. So some people clearly have got money in their pocket. Many haven't. So we'll see what that actually means in the next few months, whether we get this big V-shape or whether it just sputters out. And lastly, and related to that, we are in a global environment where we have most of the major central banks, including the RBA and the RBA very begrudgingly, continuing to raise interest rates whilst trying to send messages to the market that all is well and a soft landing awaits. Their lower inflation forecasts allowing for a relatively lower peak in interest rates were largely predicated, or I should say partially predicated, on China remaining locked down. If China is back, if commodity demand in China is going to go through the roof, inflation is going to go through the roof from the supply side, at which point where we get to peak interest rates at is not where we would like it to be in all probability. So you're saying this could actually fuel global inflation? Well, how can it not? 
I mean, China traditionally has fueled deflation on the goods side and inflation on the commodities side. Now, there are still big question marks over how realistic that will be going forward. On the goods side, we are seeing onshoring, friendshoring, deglobalization, and the shift in supply chains away from China bit by bit, but it's accelerating. That's more inflationary. If you move to Vietnam, you move to India, you move anywhere else, you move home, it will cost you that much more. That's called resilience. That's like buying an insurance policy. It costs you more than not having one, but it's not as deflationary as it was much as China would like to try and continue exporting to the entire world. And on the commodities side, it remains to be seen what kind of recovery we'll get in China, because they are the ones who have been saying for years, we have too much infrastructure, we have too much housing, all of which is true. We have overinvestment, which is true. But if they are going to throw everything at the economy once more to try and get a last hurrah for another 18 months, 24 months of, of artificial debt-juiced growth, then we're going to have 18 to 24 months of commodity price inflation, which will mean higher energy prices, higher iron ore prices, which is obviously good for Australia, good for the Aussie dollar. But in on terms of the input inflation, it's inflationary. And in terms of the overall impetus to Aussie growth, it's also inflationary. So, you know, for Australia in particular, as a commodity exporter, it's, it's suggesting that the RBA has got more to do. It's also suggesting that central banks around the world will certainly have their hands full, because if inflation is continuing to rise, central banks will do what they can only do. Well, absolutely. I mean, most central banks couldn't be more clear in their message that they will fight inflation. Let's see how willing they are to do that when it starts to be seen that China may be leaning in the opposite direction to them. If you do have a burst of growth in China and stimulus while everyone else is tightening, they're going to have to tighten even more. And we're not getting people talking about that too much because it's rather an uncomfortable narrative. They'd rather talk about how wonderful it is that China's reopened. Everything has an upside and a downside. This also raises the prospect of the global recession, doesn't it? Well, the risks of that are already out there. If you look at what the IMF is saying, what the World Bank is saying, what many central banks are saying. That, you know, that being the case, you look at how low unemployment is almost everywhere, and it's just not shifting higher. And you have to say, where's this recession going to come from, given how low unemployment still is, even even being a lagging indicator. So it's extremely interesting at the moment, seeing the dichotomy between genuine fears, looking at some data, and looking at the lagged impact of interest rate increases. And the actual data we see at the moment where, you know, if you want a job, you can get one. If you want a pay rise, you can get one, which doesn't suggest a recessionary impact. But if the, if the central banks do have to keep doing more, then you do raise the risks that at some point they cross the Rubicon and you enter into recessionary territory. And that could last for some time. Well, potentially, yes, that could last for some time. It's difficult to say exactly how long. But if we are in a more difficult global structure now where you have higher input costs, both from the commodities side and you have it from the deglobalization side too. And yet, and here's a crucial point, every time markets start to suspect that central banks don't mean what they say and won't raise interest rates as aggressively as they have been, every time they suspect that's the case, markets start bidding up the price of everything, property, assets, crypto, Etc. 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 Equities. You're- Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to sixty percent off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com/acast. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. In a really painful and dangerous dynamic where effectively the markets are egging on the central banks to continue to raise interest rates to try and suppress all this inflationary exuberance, which they are pricing for by presuming the central banks are going to have to cut interest rates rather than raise them. So you're getting into an incredibly weird standoff both between China and the West in terms of stimulus versus contractionary policy and between markets which are pricing for rate cuts and central banks which are saying no 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 everything structurally says we need rate hikes. That would suggest though that we're now entering into uncharted waters would it not be the case? It, it, it's largely uncharted and that well you know as the great philosopher once said you never enter the same river twice everything is of course different today than it was yesterday slightly but we're seeing a constellation of things that we haven't seen. We've seen Chinese stimulus before. We know how that plays out. We haven't seen Chinese stimulus alongside deglobalization. We haven't seen Chinese stimulus alongside deglobalization alongside rate hikes. And we certainly have an entire generation, if not two, of participants in Western financial markets who only know one mean. Rates go up and then they come down more than they went up. And you always, always buy the dip because there will always be another property bubble, another equity bubble, another asset bubble for you to get into. That's what central banks do. They create bubbles. And I suspect we're now in a paradigm where actually the Fed in particular is determined to stop that and to stop that sharply. So if you've therefore got China blowing up more commodity prices on top of a Fed that doesn't want any asset bubbles anymore, and you've got a market, which right now, as we speak in 2023, is going back into bubble territory on everything. It's going to end painfully for markets, I think. Indeed, indeed. And and added to that, you've got the prospect of the Ukraine war, and no one's going to know what's happening there as well. Well, indeed. I mean, relative to 2022, you have to say it's an upside in that we can't get a bigger shock there this year than we got last year. So the market will price in that relative good news. But I strongly suspect within weeks, certainly within months, you will get a spring offensive from both the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. And in fact, this also factors in to the broader global backdrop I was just describing. If you read the related press carefully, you'll see obviously that Ukraine is entirely reliant on Western weapons. It doesn't have any of its own. Right now, Even the Americans are saying their stocks are running out and they can't produce the amount that Ukraine are using. It's just not possible. They've offshored production or closed down production since the end of the since the end of the Cold War. If they need to produce lots more HIMARS, javelins, et cetera, et cetera, it just can't be done. Not on the scale Ukraine needs. And that's true right the way across weapon systems. Now, Russia has the same issue. They're having to lean on Iran for help and North Korea. But they're shifting towards a war economy to basically prioritize military expenditure over everything else, slowly, step by step. So we've fought a war so far with largely Ukrainian and Russian lives rather than anybody else using Western and Russian inventories. The next phase of the war is going to be shifting to actual who can produce more, which is how wars historically have been fought. And that involves inflation because it's very expensive. It involves shifts in production patterns right the way vertically along the supply chain from raw materials up to the finished product. And it involves changes to the economic system because it is 
to use an old adage, guns or butter. If you already have rising interest rates, you already have the economy at low unemployment levels and producing as much as it possibly can. And then you say, well, we need to increase output a lot more to win this war on both sides. It's inflationary. Well, Michael, that's all quite illuminating and quite a lot of thoughts for the new year. And thank you very much. You're very welcome and happy new year to everyone. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund sees a turning point for the global economy as it raises its growth outlook for the first time in a year with resilient US spending and China's reopening buttressing demand against a litany of risks. Gross domestic product will likely expand 2.9% in 2023, 0.2 percentage points more than forecast in October, the fund said on Tuesday in Singapore, in a quarterly update to its World Economic Outlook. While that's a slowdown from a 3.4% expansion in 2022, the IMF said it expects growth will bottom out this year before accelerating to 3.1% in 2024. And the month of January started on a super bad note for employees in the tech world. With big tech companies like Microsoft and Google joining the ongoing layoff season, more than 3,400 tech employees were being laid off per day on average in January globally. As per the data by layoffs tracking site layoffs.fyi, 219 companies laid off more than 68,000 employees in January. In 2022, over 1,000 companies laid off 154,336 workers as per the data by layoffs tracking site layoffs.fyi and the mass tech layoffs of 2022 are continuing into the new year. The sacking episodes have gained speed amid global economic meltdown and recession fears. Deeper layoffs are coming in 2023 as most business economists have predicted that their companies will cut payrolls in the coming months. And Rio Tinto has lost a highly radioactive capsule somewhere along a 1,400km highway through the Western Australian desert. We're taking this incident very seriously, Rio Tinto head of iron ore Simon Trott said in a statement on Sunday. We recognise this is clearly very concerning and are sorry for the alarm it has caused in the Western Australian community. The mining giant and Western Australia's government are attempting to find the widget, which is as much as 8mm or 0.3 inches in length and contains a small amount of the radioactive isotope cesium-137. While the risk to the general community is low, exposure to the substance could cause radiation burns or radiation sickness, Emergency WA said on its website. The widget was a component in a gauge used to measure the density of iron ore. Rio said the radioactive was collected from the mine on January 12th by a transport contractor and was due to arrive at a radiation storage facility in Perth on January 16th. It was only discovered to be missing when its container was opened for inspection on January 25th. The West Australian government said when the package holding the device was inspected, it was found to have been broken apart with one of the four mounting bolts missing and the source itself and all the screws on the gauge also missing. It comes as Rio Tinto, which is listed in Sydney and London, attempts to rebuild its reputation after destroying a site of sacred significance to Indigenous Australians in 2020 as part of an iron ore mine expansion. And there are clearer signs that consumers are feeling the pain of high inflation and successive rate interest rate hikes, as Australian retailers have posted their first drop in sales in almost a year. Shoppers across the nation spent $34.47 billion in December, a period which coincides with Christmas and Boxing Day sales. That was a sharp fall in sale turnover, minus 3.9%, compared to the previous month's record high, according to new data released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics on Tuesday. It was also much worse than expected, given Reuters polled economists were only expecting a slight drop, minus 0.2%. This is the first monthly fall in retail turnover for 2022, following 11 consecutive monthly rises, Ben Dorber, the ABS head of retail statistics, said. And corporate watchdog chairman Joe Longo is poised to reveal the largest shake-up of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission in 15 years next month in a move designed to streamline enforcement, cut bureaucracy and deliver faster decision-making. 
The overhaul will cut the number of divisions, which are currently broken into multiple supervisory, enforcement and operations groups, sparking the exits of at least two long-serving executives, while more money will be directed towards filling what Mr Longo called ASIC's technology debt. The regulator will streamline operations, focusing primarily on financial services and wealth and its associated enforcement group, along with some changes to markets and markets enforcement, in a move designed to make ASIC's law enforcement less whack-a-mile and siloed, and more strategic to go after eight priority areas, including scams, crypto and cyber. And Rupert Murdoch's News Corp will hike the cover price of its metropolitan tabloids across Australia as it braces for an ageing print readership and a weakening advertising market. The New York-based media company was also planning a major redesign of the print editions of the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun and the Courier Mail as part of the changes. The price increase, expected to be substantial, was approved by Global News Corp chief executive Robert Thompson. News Corp owns a range of other local assets including the Australian as well as cable TV operator Foxtel and streaming services KO and Binge. The company has not provided reasons for the proposed changes, but the publishing industry is facing major increases in the cost of paper caused by soaring electricity prices and shipping costs. News Corp, as the largest print publisher in Australia, was facing the prospect of limits on how much paper it could use. Last August, it bumped the Saturday and Sunday cover price of the tabloids by 50 cents to $4. The weekday editions cost $2.50. That compares to $4 for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and $4 for The Australian. News Corp is one of a number of local media companies facing broader financial pressures from rising costs that have coincided with a weaker advertising market. The redesign could be indicative of a change in editorial strategy, but it's more likely to do with falling print circulation figures and a need to generate income to offset costs associated with print. And shares in India's Adani Group have plunged up to 20% as the company considers legal action over allegations of stock market manipulation and accounting fraud. Investors began selling Adani shares after a Hindenburg research report alleged market manipulation. Adani's net worth increased nearly 2,000% in recent years to as much as $174.82 billion. Some Adani companies have been suspended amid the selling. The public's reaction has been swift and so far unforgiving. Indian mining magnate Gautam Adani's business has been massacred on the stock market as investors reacted to the news. At the time of writing, the mass sell-off has seen US $52 billion, that's Aussie $73 billion, wiped out from the overall market value of the various companies related to the Adani Group. The Hindenburg Research Group has accused the Adani Group of brazen accounting fraud, stock manipulation and money laundering at Adani, taking place over the course of decades, which they also said had, they had proof for. At Hindenburg also revealed that it had taken a short position in Adani Group, meaning it's betting that the company's stock price will plunge. The heavy selling of the Adani-linked shares, which wiped out billions of dollars worth of market value for India's second largest conglomerate, caused trading in some Adani companies to be suspended, temporarily halted. The Adani Group's Australian arm, Bravas Mining and Resources, has faced heavy opposition and controversy over its construction of the Carmichael mine in central Queensland. In a 413-page rebuttal, Adani likened the US investments firm report to an attack on India amid mounting financial pressure on the coal conglomerate. And Australian Treasurer Jim Chalmers pledged to deliver values-based capitalism in Australia by revamping markets, renovating institutions and urging the private sector to co-invest with the government as the global economy confronts an inflation crisis. Australia can do more and do better than just batten down the hatches in 2023 or hope for the best, Chalmers wrote in a 6,000-word essay that was published in Australian magazine The Monthly on Monday. We can build something better, more meaningful and more inclusive. In the article, Chalmers, who took office in May after Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's Labour Party took power, 
criticised the neoliberal approach of the previous government and promised to redefine and reform our economy and institutions. We will renovate the Reserve Bank, responding to the RBA review, Chalmers wrote, saying the Productivity Commission would be turned into a think tank to advise the government. Chalmers said the way the markets allocate and arrange capital also needs restructuring. The Treasurer said co-investment with businesses was a powerful tool and the government would look to employ it in the industry, housing and electricity sectors. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers is working on plans to attract banks and superannuation funds to set up a social impact investing fund to tackle entrenched disadvantage in the May federal budget. A social impact investing fund would aim to improve education, disability care, aged care and homelessness and deliver social benefits and financial returns to investors. Securing money from the private sector would also help fiscally constrained Labor government achieve its social policy objectives without blowing the budget. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Dr Chalmers are understood to be closely considering recommendations from the government's social impact for investing task force, led by former Macquarie banker Michael Trail. The major banks have expressed in-principle support for considering seed equity funding for a social impact investing wholesaler, which may require $200 million of private funding, potentially to be matched by a similar amount from the federal government. The blueprint borrows from the former UK Labor Blair and Brown government's Big Society Capital Institution jointly set up with £400 million from the government and commercial banks. And the federal government may have to ramp up its policy-making machinery quickly in, in, in response to the challenge of a chat GPT, Chief Scientist Cathy Foley has warned. Dr Foley said that although she did not want to preempt any ministerial decisions, she anticipated that her office might be asked to prepare a rapid research information report on the implications of the new AI tech. ChatGPT is a highly sophisticated new chatbot that can generate remarkably human-like texts, which can be very hard to distinguish from the real thing. Besides potential impact on the labour market, ChatGPT and its ilk also have other features with potentially complex policy implications. They open up the prospect of a new kind of plagiarism-type problem at schools and universities. There are also copyright and compensation issues over ChatGPT's trawling of online material. There is also the risk of impersonation and fraud, and there is the simple fact that ChatGPT often confidently and quite convincingly generates inaccurate information. Tools like ChatGPT can create enormous opportunities for companies that leverage the technology strategically. ChatGPT AI can augment how humans work by automating repetitive tasks or providing more engaging interactions with users. Here are a few of the ways companies can use tools like ChatGPT. Compiling research, drafting marketing content, brainstorming ideas, writing computer code, automating parts of the sales process, delivering aftercare services when customers buy products, providing customers customised instructions, streamlining and enhancing processes using automating, train automation, translating text from one language to another, smoothing out the customer onboarding process, increasing customer engagement, leading to improved loyalty and retention. Customer service is a huge area of opportunity for many companies. Businesses can use ChatGPT technology to generate responses for their own customer service chatbots so they can automate many tasks typically done by humans and radically improves response time. Still, is ChatGPT a good source of information about the world? Absolutely not. The prompt page even warns users that ChatGPT may occasionally generate incorrect information and may occasionally produce harmful instructions or biased content. And after a disastrous year of flooding for Eastern Australia, Soaring insurance premiums mean more people in disaster-prone areas are facing the grim reality that they cannot afford to protect their biggest assets. Julia Davis, Policy and Communications Officer at the Financial Rights Legal Centre, says there are cases in flood-ravaged Lismore when the annual cost of home insurance jumped from over $1,400 a year to $15,000 a year once flood cover was included. The cost is even higher at $25,000 for home and contents insurance. Experts predict this type of bill shock will get worse as extreme weather events become more common due to climate change.
those who tend to be the most affected are low-income earners who can least afford to shell out thousands of dollars on their home insurance. And Australian insurers are bracing for ballooning losses from a second round of catastrophic weather after New Zealand's North Island was pounded by flash flooding and landslides. Insurance Australia Group warned it could face maximum losses of $236 million flowing from the Auckland floods, but Suncor said its reinsurance arrangements would limit loss to $45 million. Suncor warned it was facing 3,000 claims across its Bureau and AA insurance brands, with a number likely to swell as, as its customers return to homes and properties. However, with more rain on the way, insurers may face a second hit if New Zealand is struck by repeated rounds of disastrous weather. And the leaders of major Australian arts companies have welcomed the cultural policy unveiled by the Albanese government on Monday, as much for its arts-affirming rhetoric as for the $286 million in new funding it has promised for the sector. The centrepiece of the policy, full funding details for which will be revealed in the May budget, is a replacement of the Australia Council with a new grants-making body, Creative Australia. This will provide more support for commercial art forms competing for global audiences, which were hitherto marginalising government funding decisions. The contemporary music industry gets $69 million for the creation of Music Australia, which will play a role identical to the one Screen Australia plays for the film business, with a remit to invest in the development, production and promotion of Australian music. And AMP is growing its home loan assets as it offloads asset management business to focus on banking and wealth management, with Nano tipping in between $500 million and $1 billion in loan. Fintech and non-bank lenders that do not have a solid, solid differentiator or track record in securitisation have struggled under the weight of tighter funding markets, forced to pass on more than the Reserve Bank's of Australia's 3% increase in interest rates to their customers since May. Nano is understood to have successfully tried to tap the market for $75 million in August. And Virgin Australia will roll back to its first full-year profit in a decade after a surge in first-half revenue to $2.5 billion as it ramped up preparations for its float and appointed former Macquarie chairman Peter Warren to the board. Chief executive Jane Herodlicka said the reborn airline would turn over roughly $2.5 billion in revenue in the first half of the 2023 financial year, with a profit margin of 5%, the first time it's disclosed these figures. That figure is more than the $2.2 billion recorded in full 2022 financial year and implies it is set to deliver $125 million in profits for the six months to December 31. Virgin would not confirm whether the profit margin figure reflected bottom line profits or earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Peter Kikinos, the Fair Vice President and Managing Director of online learning platform Udemy APAC. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.